0: G'day everyone, and welcome back. This is the third and final episode on the Battle of Finchhaven. The battle itself is on a knife's edge. The beachhead around Scarlet Beach has been established, but with the bulk of the 20th Brigade pushing south to Finchhaven, only one battalion has been left to secure the area. Men of the 2nd 17th Battalion are protecting the immediate area, while one company has occupied the inland position of Jivevenang. But Japanese forces amassing in the Sattelberg area with the intention of overrunning Jivivinang and capturing the brigade's stores and equipment at Scarlet Beach. This would also cut off any chance of the 20th Brigade making an escape should things turn sour for them. To the south, the 2nd 13th and 2nd 15th Battalions are attempting to get to Finchhaven, but strong resistance at the Bumai River and from defensive positions at Kakagog Cure Plantation and the City and Triangle Features is making life difficult. Not to mention the rough terrain of spurs and thick jungle and bamboo thickets making supply of the battalions and extraction of the wounded an epic struggle. Brigadier Windeyer needs reinforcements. He's requested a brigade, but arguments within the top echelons, including Blamey and MacArthur, means that all he'll get is a battalion. But it will be a couple of days before that battalion can be delivered. The longer he waits, the weaker his forces become, while the Japanese continue reinforcing Saddleberg, He needs to do something, and he needs to do it now. But before he does, he will do something that any great general would do. He will check out the website of the Australian Military History Podcast dot com for any associated maps and photos and check us out on Facebook and Instagram for interesting little bits and pieces. And if he wanted to say day, he'd drop me a line at media at gmail. So, now that he's done that, Wendo can get back to running his battle. Things are getting to a critical point. Wendaya needs to push home the attack, but the Japanese defences are strong. But attack is his only option, and he had to decide where to press his attack. He could push the 2nd-13th on from their current position, or through the ground won by the 2nd-15th. He decided that the latter was the best option, and ordered the 2nd-13th to pass through the 2nd-15th companies and capture the Cacagog area. The reserve company of the 2nd-15th was brought forward to relieve the 2nd-13th company, which had been guarding the Boomai River crossing, thus releasing all of the 2nd-13th for the attack. As the bulk of the 2nd-13th were gathering, Sergeant Chown, the mortar sergeant, led a small patrol forward along the line the rest of the battalion would have to follow. They moved to the edge of the bamboo thicket, only 20 yards from the Japanese position. Rather than waste his 15 waters, he took the time to observe the position and saw no enemy movement. He made his way back to his own troops and informed Hanley that the position could be taken with one platoon. Chown led Sergeant McVay's platoon to the edge of the bamboo. When all were in position... With a shout, they charged forward up the slope and caught the handful of defenders completely by surprise. The Japanese fled and the remainder of Hamley's company occupied the position. They would remain here for seven days, guarding the right flank of the advance. This may seem like a pretty cushy way to spend a week, but to bring supplies to the hill required a three-hour hard slog through mud and jungle. Each company was lotted one-third of each day to act as carrying parties. It was bully beef and biscuits for these men for that week. As such, the position was named Starvation Hill. Also on this day, the 22nd Battalion continued its advance from the south. There was some concern about whether all the Japanese thought to have been in that area had withdrawn, or if some had remained. After a 10-hour advance to Manch Point, without any resistance, it was clear that the enemy had withdrawn in its entirety. On the 28th, the Papuan Infantry reported enemy movement from Finchhaven along the inland tracks towards Saddleburg. Maybe they'd had enough and were leaving the area to the Australians. And maybe they weren't. Whenever men of the 2nd 13th or 2nd 15th exposed themselves, they were shot at. So that was a pretty clear indication that there were still plenty of Japanese in the area. And captured documents also confirmed that although the army may be pulling out, the naval troops were under orders to stand firm and hold at all costs. Aerial reconnaissance also showed extensive defensive works in the Saloncure plantation. With all this in mind, and with his limited resources, Winde decided the best option was to seize Kakagog, which dominated the area and would make the positions in the plantation too hot to hold for the Japanese. His orders for the 20th of September was for the 2nd 13th to capture Kakagog Ridge, while the 2nd 15th would continue probing enemy defences, while the 2nd 17th would remain in reserve and hold off any Japanese attacks from the Saddleburg area. The first of those attacks was launched at around 3pm and a further two attacks were put in before 8pm. Each attack came in from the front and the left with screaming Japanese troops charging forward, only to be mown down by Australian fire. The Australians suffered only one man wounded, but it was estimated that 50 to 60 Japanese had been killed. There wasn't much for Major Main and his men to celebrate, though. To beat off these attacks, they had just about exhausted their ammunition. No doubt the Japanese would come again in the morning. Would the Australians have enough ammunition to hold them off? On the 28th, the 2nd 13th began its operation to take Kakagog Spur. D Company was to move through A Company and occupy Cribb Spur on its way to capturing their final objective of the Triangle. A Company would then move through D Company and occupy the remains of the hospital. At 2pm, D Company reported that it was on its objective of Cribb Spur, but in fact they were on a different spur. A Company moved forward through D Company, but they were fired on at about 5pm. With only a few hours of daylight left, Lieutenant Colonel Colvin ordered both companies to dig in for the night. All up, the battalion had advanced only about 300 yards. A forward patrol had been spotted by the Japanese, who brought down an artillery barrage on the area. But although the shells did little damage, the flying coconuts were of more concern. Just one more unique danger of fighting in the jungle. The lads on Starvation Hill, or at least those not lumping supplies, undertook patrols to see who was in the area. Lieutenant Webb led his platoon out to patrol to the northeast. After about 150 yards, they ran into heavy fire at a range of only 10 yards. Private Thorpe was wounded in the leg, and after applying a field dressing, Lance Sergeant Arnott crawled back through the bamboo to fetch a stretcher bearer. The bearer, Sergeant Shambler, tried to reach Thorpe, but was hit and later died of his wounds. A mortar bombardment was called onto the position, and under its cover, the platoon was able to recover its casualties. Private Thorpe had been killed while waiting for extraction. All up, the platoon had lost three dead and six wounded. Colvin ordered Hanley to sit tight with his company and not to bother engaging these defensive positions at this point. While all this was going on, the reinforcement drama was also continuing. On the 27th, MacArthur replied to the request for reinforcements with the message stating, Before definitive decisions are reached, further information is requested as the size of the hostile forces which have been encountered. Now I know MacArthur had wider commitments to worry about, but this does seem like unnecessary faffing about. Surely, if you've got commanders on the ground saying they need another brigade, then the numbers themselves are irrelevant. A more important factor is what kind of defence are the forces facing. A platoon in a heavily fortified bunker can hold up an advance as effectively as an entire battalion in a weak defensive position. But I'm just a mere podcaster, so what would I know? On the 28th, General Herring, Brigadier Sutherland and Brigadier Byworth boarded a plane to fly to Milne Bay to see if they could breathe some life into Barbie and get at least a battalion to Finchhaven as soon as possible. On take-off, though, the plane crashed and Sutherland was killed. Obviously, Herring and Byworth weren't in much of a condition to continue to Milbane either. But Admiral Carpenter, of the US Navy, instead flew to Milne Bay to speak with his colleague about maybe providing better service to the Australians. Is a good bloke, that Admiral Carpenter. Meanwhile, blamey Signal MacArthur, reminding him of an agreement made on the 17th that Wooden's brigade would be sent if necessary. Blamey told MacArthur he believed it was necessary, to which MacArthur gave a reply of the move would cause disarrangement of amended program upon which we are engaged. If tactical and necessary require, of course will be done at once. I am sure, however, that this is not the case and that Finchhaven, within a reasonable time, will be in our hands without serious loss. Though so basically, despite requests by the Brigadier on the ground, supported by the Divisional Commander, a US Navy Admiral, and Blamey himself, MacArthur basically refused because apparently he knew better. Carpenter, good man that he was, was already taking steps to get a battalion to Finchhaven as quickly as possible. The day before authorization for the reinforcement was given, he had already sent Commander Adair to Herring's headquarters to arrange the move. And during this whole episode, the man whose brigade would be providing the reinforcement, General Wooden, was in the dark. At 4pm on the 28th, he was advised that two naval vessels would arrive that night to take a battalion on board. Then he was advised there were no vessels available. Frustrated at being reliant on the Navy, he decided to send the headquarters of his brigade to Mange Point to join up with the 22nd Battalion and come into the fight from that direction. Finally, at 8pm, he was told that the first landing craft to complete its unloading of supplies at Ley would be made available to him. So, in torrential rain, by 3.20am on the 29th, the 2nd 43rd Battalion... And a platoon of the second thirteenth field company were finally on their way. Wooden advised Colonel Joshua commander of the second forty third that his role would likely be the protection of the beachhead and seizing and holding Tattleberg. The rain which the second forty third were embarking under was also falling around the battle area of Finshaven. Bringing supplies in and getting the wounded out was becoming increasingly difficult in the muddy terrain. A flying fox was erected over the Bumai River, which helped a little, but for the most part, it was steep and slippery tracks for the stretcher bearers and supply carriers. Throughout the day, both the 2nd 13th and 2nd 15th sent out probing patrols. Cooper sent out a number of patrols from the 2nd 13th area, and they had a particularly tough time of it as they tried to find their way towards Cacagog. Enemy artillery inflicted casualties and progress was halted. Worried about the possibility of a flank attack, Colvin ordered Cooper to withdraw back to Cribbs' position. The 2nd 15th had a bit more success. Two patrols from Stewart's company managed to penetrate to the Elba Creek without meeting any Japanese. Lieutenant Nesbitt sent a section forward to about 50 yards into the Salinkow Plantation, about 20 yards from a bridge. Nesbitt then patrolled another 100 yards before meeting up with another patrol which had found the bunker which had opposed the initial crossing of the Bumai River a few days earlier. It had been deserted. On Flade 5, Kakagog prevented any further movement in that area though. I was becoming a little frustrated by the lack of progress. Through superhuman efforts, supplies and ammunition had been brought forward and stockpiled close to the front. But the troops who should have been advancing that line were consuming the supplies without making much progress, necessitating the provision of more supplies, which would require more superhuman efforts to provide it. In frustration, he decided that the flanking attack on Kakagog would have to be abandoned so as to focus his full strength on the push south. To add to his problems, his right flank was causing him some concern. The Papuan Infantry had reported that four Japanese officers and 50 men were moving towards Saddleburg. Reports from natives confirmed that large bodies of Japanese were withdrawing from Finchhaven, Langamac Bay and Locker and were all making their way towards Saddleburg. On one hand, this was good news. It meant that there were fewer troops to defend Finchhaven, which would make its capture much easier. But capturing Finchhaven would be pointless if the beachhead around Scarlet Beach was lost to an attack from Saddleburg. You can only imagine the relief of window when he was advised that the 2nd 43rd were on their way. The ships carrying the 2nd 43rd arrived off Scarlet Beach at 2 o'clock on the morning of the 29th of September and by dawn the battalion was ashore and gathering at its assembly area. A tank recon party had also been landed, but the lack of shipping meant that no actual tanks were available. The landing craft were able to take away 134 walking wounded, but time restrictions prevented the loading of the more seriously wounded men. Upon landing, Colonel Joshua was handed an instruction from Window, advising that he was to relieve the troops guarding the roads around Saddleburg as soon as possible to free the 2nd 17th to take part in the attack on Finchhaven. By the end of the day, Captain Seacon's company of the 2nd 43rd had relieved Pike's company around Kataka, Captain Grant had relieved Maine's company at Jivenang, while two other companies guarded the mouth of the Song River and at Zag. During the afternoon of the 29th, Angus and Stewart's companies of the 2nd 15th advanced towards Elba Creek and were to establish themselves on a knoll overlooking what appeared to be a strong Japanese position. This meant they had contained the Japanese to the east side of the creek and opened up a track which could sustain motor traffic. The 2nd 17th was brought up to reserve and Major Newcomb's company of the 2nd 15th was able to concentrate with the rest of the 2nd 15th near the Ford across the Elbe Creek. On the 2nd-13th front, Lieutenant Angel led a patrol to find a route south towards the Triangle feature. He returned at 1.20pm and reported that the route was free of Japanese troops. Winday arrived soon after, and he and Colvin surveyed the ground between City and Triangle and decided that an attack from the northwest was feasible using the ground that Angel had followed as a forming up place. The plan of attack was soon finalised. The 2nd-13th would attack with Crib on the right towards Triangle and De Camps on the left towards City. Cooper's company would be held in reserve. The 2nd 15th would concentrate around Snell's Hill and the 2nd 17th would have two companies in readiness to exploit any breakthrough. Angel led his platoon out to cover the forming up area and reported that the approach route was covered from enemy view. The only downside was the report received from Cooper that they could hear Japanese digging in on the next spur, about a 100 yards away. But Windale was confident that finally everything was in place and that he could now launch a series of decisive battalion-sized battles. Everyone felt that 1st of October was going to be the day the battle was finally won. Before first light on the 1st, De camps sent Lieutenant Hall's platoon to secure a small knoll to the southeast of the Elber Creek to ensure the forming up area would be free from enemy observation. As the advance began, the platoon would then rejoin the company in going forward. The companies moved out shortly after 7.30am with orders to be in position by 10.45. Airstrikes were scheduled to be carried out between 11 and midday, after which 20 guns would fire 30 rounds each as the attacking companies moved off. Major Hanley's company would mortar enemy troops who had been trying to move around his flank throughout the night. As Lieutenant Hall moved into his position on the Knoll, his men came under fire, suffering two casualties. He reported that any attempt by his platoon to move forward immediately attracted machine gun fire from City. He was also able to advise the camps that he could see an enemy position on the east bank of the Elbe near the Salenkeel Road, screened with heavy timbers. Wendaya had requested that the airstrike should not go in before 11am or after midday. But for some reason, at 10.35, 10 Volte Vengeances and 8 Boston Dive Bombers came in and strafed and bombed the Saloncure Plantation and Kakagog area. It was a lesson learned during the Ley and Salomoa Campaign that the Air Force should adhere to the infantry timetable when providing air support, which is just common sense. So why these planes came in early is anyone's guess. Fortunately, on this occasion, it didn't hinder the infantry or cause any casualties. It did encourage the Japanese to keep their heads down while Cribb and De Camps were moving into their positions. In response to Hall's report, De Camps requested permission to seize the Japanese position first before moving onto City and Triangle as planned. Colvin said he could include the position in his attack, but the priority was City and Triangle. De Camps felt that the position needed to be taken in order to protect his flank, and so he committed his entire company, less Hall's platoon. Lieutenant Angel's platoon made it to the Elba Creek without opposition, but Sergeant Crawford's platoon, coming in behind, came under heavy fire and was forced to disperse behind whatever cover they could find. DeCamps managed to withdraw some of Crawford's platoon, but the bulk of them was stuck. The camps tried to join up with his two platoons from another direction, but was kept from doing so and decided to join up with Hall's platoon instead. Unfortunately, along the way he took a wrong turn and ended up on the wrong spur, facing an enemy position near Triangle. Things weren't looking real flash at this point. Angels and Crawford's platoons were pinned down, Hall was in position, but De Camps was geographically embarrassed. Maybe things were going better for Cribbs. Well, no. They moved off after the airstrike with Lieutenant McDougall and Birmingham's platoons in front, and Lieutenant Pope coming in 75 yards behind. Believing De Camps' company to be on his left, Cribbs was somewhat surprised to be taking fire from that flank as soon as they'd passed Hall's position. They took cover, sliding down a 12-foot slope to a narrow track. Following this, they advanced to a point 25 yards beyond Elba Creek. McDougall's platoon was brought to a halt by snipers while Birmingham was taking heavy fire from Triangle. Coming up from behind, Pope's platoon was caught by their own artillery fire, losing three men killed. So, not long after the attack had begun, both attacking companies were pinned down. Colvin could do little more than call Cooper's company to the forming up area and await information from his forward companies before deciding where to best send Cooper. The intelligence officer, Lieutenant Murray was able to give Colvin a rough idea of the situation and Colvin decided that Cooper should circle around to the left and engage the enemy holding up the camp's two platoons. Corporal Kennedy from Crawford's platoon made his way to Colvin's headquarters soon after to advise that Crawford was organising an attack as the two platoons were being whittled down and would soon be ineffective if they were to remain. Colvin ordered Kennedy to return and inform Angel and Crawford that Cooper's company was about to attack to their left with Lieutenant Ryan's platoon tying in with his flank. If you've ever wondered about the value of a good senior NCO, then look no further than Sergeant Crawford. He organised the men of his own company and Lieutenant Angel's for an attack to get things moving again. Keep in mind that Angel was the higher-ranked soldier in the area, but a good officer knows when to let an NCO have his head. And so Angel assisted Crawford to get the five sections ready. Private Rolf, the platoon Bren Gunner, stood up and firing from the hip silenced the most troublesome Japanese post, just as Lieutenant Ryan's platoon came in on the left. The signal for the attack to begin was Crawford throwing a grenade, after which the two platoons were charged with fixed bayonets. With the sound of the grenade still echoing around the surrounding hills, the men charged from the creek, crossing open ground and heading towards the main enemy position. They came under heavy fire, but were unstoppable. Covering the 40 yards in record time, they forced the Japanese to abandon the position and flee into the coconut trees. Crawford then organised his platoon into positions facing Kakagog and went back to check on his wounded. Japanese troops were still in a position which had been bypassed during the charge, and while attacking this post, Crawford was wounded. Angel had also been wounded, but both men stayed with the fight until it was over. Robert Rolfe once again took care of another Japanese position with his Bren gun, but was wounded while trying his luck on a third. At times, the fighting was hand-to-hand, and Lieutenant Angel, despite being wounded, closed with a Japanese soldier against the wall of a hut his wound probably didn't do him any favours and the japanese was getting the better of him until one of angel's men ended the fight with his bayonet i wonder if that earned the young private a promotion not done yet crawford and angel led their men a further thirty yards to the next enemy post and soon had that under control as well but snipers hidden in the trees were causing problems Colvin ordered cooper to sweep the treetops with his Bren gunners and the snipers were no longer a problem a last japanese post further to the north continued to pour fire into the attacking australians too far away for another bayonet charge to have any hope. But a two-inch mortar crew fired onto the position, while a section of Ryan's platoon moved forward. Seeing the writing on the wall, the Japanese up and fled into the plantation. During these attacks, the Japanese had lost 50 men killed. Angel and Crawford's platoons had lost four killed and 17 wounded, while Ryan's platoon had two killed and four wounded. But at least now the flank was cleared. De Camps was now able to make his way to Hall's platoon, while ryan covered the captured ground and crawford's and angel's platoons were sent back to join hall what was left of decamp's company was now back together and awaiting the next move now while all that was going on cribbs was still pinned down by heavy opposition the enemy posted at triangle were on top of a cliff top and had command of the entire area deciding that there was no feasible way to approach triangle cribbs reorganized his units and turned to the southeast to attack city instead Colvin was starting to get concerned about the progress of the attack. He asked Windauer if a company of the second fifteenth could take over the Elba Creek area to free up Cooper's company to push through to his other two when the opportunity arose. This was agreed. Snell's company was sent forward. By two hundred thirty, the artillery landing on Triangle and City was starting to have some effect, and Cribbs got moving again. Decamp's battered and bruised company moved forward to the left of Cribbs. By three PM, Snell's company had relieved Coopers and Colvin and was keen to get this thing done. He pressured his two forward company commanders to push on as fast as possible, but both DeCamps and Cribs found the going difficult due to heavy fire from Kakagok Ridge, and the ground over which they were moving were a series of spurs and gullies. The Japanese had a direct line of fire onto each ridge. DeCamps was surveying a route for his advance when he saw enemy troops in a hut on a spur, running directly into city. It was only 25 yards away, but heavy fire from city prevented any advance. He tried to find another way around to the north, but found another enemy post. He figured the only option was to attack the hut, under the cover of every Bren gun available. The Japanese saw the men gathering at the start point and lobbed a few mortars, inflicting more casualties among the camp's company. But the Brens were soon in place and Hall's platoon led the attack. But the Bren gun barrage was ineffective and Hall came under heavy fire and was forced to ground. The camp spent the next half hour attempting to find alternate routes from which to attack the hut. But there were none and so he ordered Hall to fall back. Reporting to Colvin, the camps outlined the situation. Wendaya was with Colvin when this message was received and decided it was useless to keep battering the Kakagog Ridge with the depleted companies. Of all the officers of De Camp's company, only Hall was unwounded. Wendaya ordered the 2nd 15th to be in position to continue the attack the following day, after he had made a reconnaissance of the area. Just like De Camp's, Cribbs' attack was also held up. By 3pm they were pinned down again and due to the chaotic nature of the advance, the companies had become intermingled. For two hours, Cribs tried to find ways to advance, but each time the Japanese on Kakaga Ridge opened fire on them and forced them to ground again and again. Progress had been made, but by late afternoon, both Ford Companies, as well as Cooper's Company, were ordered to halt and hold onto the ground they had gained. During that day's fighting, the 2nd 13th had lost 10 killed and 70 wounded. It was estimated that between 80 to 100 Japanese had been killed. But was it over and done with? The night was quiet, except the Australian artillery maintaining a harassing fire on the Japanese positions. The 2nd 17th noticed groups of Japanese soldiers leaving the Saloncure plantation, and when they went forward to investigate, they found abandoned positions. But there was still resistance coming from the Bumai River area. The 22nd Battalion in the south continued its push throughout the 1st of October and met no opposition, and were able to secure Drega Harbour to the south of Finshaven Early on the 2nd of October, The 2nd 17th reported that enemy fire from the Bumai River had ceased and the battalion pushed into the Salencule plantation without any further opposition. On the 2nd 13th front, the companies had begun their move up the track into Kakagog and saw the 2nd 17th moving to the south. They entered city at about midday and saw one lone, wounded Japanese soldier. A patrol was sent to Triangle and reported that it too had been abandoned. It seemed that, having held the Australians for as long as possible, The Japanese had used the cover of darkness to pull out of Kakagog, As the 2nd 13th was occupying Kakagog. the forward elements of the 2nd 17th were entering Finchhaven at Maneba Point. The 2nd 13th Battalion Diary recorded that at 12.15pm, the brig said that Finch had been taken. Finally, after 11 days of hard, sometimes desperate fighting, the men could relax for the first time since landing on Scarlet Beach. As one soldier wrote, Came evening and we went down to Finchhaven by the sea. Here lay peace and primitive civilization, native pads avenued by hibiscus in bloom, stately palms almost regal in their look, flowering frangipani, island fruits in abundance. All were happy. We had done our job. Once more, the 20th had got through. The finch may have been taken, but it had been costly. Of the total casualties of 20 officers and 338 men, eight officers and 65 men had been killed. As well as battle casualties, six officers and 295 men had to be evacuated sick, but they all returned before long. Unfortunately, the area was still not secure. The surviving Japanese had fallen back to Saddleburg, where they joined reinforcements intent on attacking the Scarlet Beach area. More hard fighting awaited the Australians of the 9th Division, But we will cover the fighting at Jivivinang and Saddleburg in a future episode.